Hey, thanks for joining us here on the Fearless Paranoia podcast, where we are seeking to demystify the complex and incredibly dense world of cybersecurity, the terminology, the tools, and the knowledge you need to be effective in protecting yourself. I am Brian, the cybersecurity attorney. And I'm Ryan, a cybersecurity architect. And today we've got a topic that I'm not going to lie to you, I was a little disturbed by how excited Ryan got when I told him that I thought this topic would be a good idea. We're going to be talking about shadow IT. Obviously, the pandemic has created a whole, let's say, new push towards allowing people to work remotely and no longer working under the physical confines of an office. As we went out and started working from home, this has given rise to something called shadow IT. Now, Ryan, What are we actually talking about when we say shadow IT? Well, we're talking about a deviation from what the accepted norm is from IT and security departments. And that is that this is a business environment and we've got specific goals to meet. And in order to meet those goals, we have employed a set of tools, systems, and things that we patch, we maintain security and monitoring and visibility over. And those are the tool sets that are approved for use in the business. The problem is when users and everybody outside of those departments that are in charge of and responsible for securing those tools and the access to those systems bring in tools of their own. And that's whether it's an application on a workstation or you signing in from a personal device at home, a personal computer, or connecting your own server to the network to do something, bringing your personal device onto a VPN connection, anything to that level where you are adding technology to the network that has not been explicitly approved by the departments that are responsible for maintaining your network is effectively shadow IT. And again, most shadow IT makes its way into the environment with good intentions. The intention is to add efficiency, add capabilities, to find new ways of achieving business goals, but without having these discussions with the people that are responsible for maintaining the remainder of the security around the network, they don't have any knowledge of these devices, which means you have a immensely increased attack surface, which brings about a lot of additional risk along with the rewards. So most users see purely the reward side of the equation and they miss the entire risk side of the scenario. And that's where shadow IT becomes a real big challenge to deal with, especially nowadays, because you know a greater increase in volume of new systems, greater increase in the risk. It's interesting to me because first of all, you got the term shadow IT, which I'm not going to lie. I've liked that term, not necessarily what it means or that it means anything, but it's just, it's a good term. It's going to be shadow IT. It sounds like it could be some like clandestine organization that runs behind the scenes that manages user permissions. I mean, yeah, it it turns out that it's pretty boring when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, but is it really just an umbrella term for unauthorized software, unauthorized devices being added to the company system? That's effectively what it is, because what's really important to businesses is having visibility. The first thing you need in order to maintain your environment in any effective manner is visibility of what's on your network. And you can either do that by just getting broad visibility to everything that's there, or you control access to the network so you have visibility over what is supposed to be there. With all those shadow IT systems, most of those fall off of the radar. They don't have monitoring tools on them. They don't have the security software tools on them. They don't have management accessibility. So these are completely outside of the pieces of the organization that are meant to be maintaining these types of systems because they weren't introduced through these teams. 
You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. I was reading in one of the studies that talked about shadow IT that suggested that nearly half of people who were IT decision makers had actually purchased equipment such as a new laptop or something at home for working during the pandemic. Now, obviously, if you have to do work from home, you have to be able to work. So I think you mentioned before that a lot of these devices are not bought with ill intention. It seems to me likely that a lot of them are actually bought with specifically work-related intention. They are meant to be used for their job. Yep. And the beautiful part about that is, is we've already covered 80% of the required journey for that device to be an approved part of the network. We've brought it in. We've proven that it can do the job. It can help achieve the business level goals that it is there for. All we need to do is get it managed by the IT department to get it compliant, just like the rest of the equivalent devices are. It's other peers on the network. And then we will have achieved what we need. So again, in most IT organizations, they would be willing to accept just taking and assuming management control of that device. And again, there's no reason that that end user should be the sole manager of that device. That typically means there's no backup being done. There's probably data integrity issues, data loss issues, a whole variety of other issues that come with that device not being managed by the policies that the company has set forth. So any users that have these type of devices, great that they went through the effort to purchase it and to keep the business continuity checks in place, but to make sure the security and the compliance checks are in place, they should reach out to their IT department and get it enrolled in whatever systems need to be enrolled to make sure it's protected properly. So one thing I did notice in this report that I hadn't really thought about before, but it actually discusses the types of equipment that were purchased. And obviously there's computers, obviously there's software. Equipment, like, and the example that's given here, printers, is obviously anything that can attach to a network and gets used by network attached devices. So anything that you print to, anything that you scan documents from, anything like that, could potentially be a threat. But is it your feeling that a lot of these equipment-related purchases like scanners, printers, anything of that nature, are probably significantly more overlooked when it comes to making sure that they meet the company's IT requirements? 100%. Most of these devices, stuff like printers, printers have vulnerabilities too. Most printers nowadays have some sort of web portal attached. If that's not restricted down to your network, that could be something that could be exploited. There's been numerous printer driver issues that, you know, exist in Windows and other printing softwares that are problematic. Not to mention the fact that if you have uncontrolled printing going on at somebody's house, even on behalf of business activities, that's potential DLP issues. There's nothing stopping them from doing a print screen of something from a financial system, and now they have a physical copy of that record. But without centralized printing, you have no knowledge of exactly what was printed, just that there was a print screen sent to the printer. And so again, just simple things like that really reduce the amount of visibility you have and contribute to the shadow IT problem. Likewise, printers also have connectivity requirements, drivers, which need to be patched, need to be updated, maintained. And if you've got printer driver sets that are outside of what your business is looking for and has in their normal maintenance cycle, those may just go unpatched for long periods of time, which can either lay turn into visibility issues or potentially security issues. So in looking at this report, I want to talk about what makes shadow IT 
something to be concerned about. This report, which is called the Out of Sight and Out of Mind Report, it's a survey of 1,100 global IT decision makers. 68% said that security wasn't as big a consideration as other factors like price and functionality when purchasing equipment, PCs, whatever. 43% didn't have a new laptop or PC checked or installed by IT, and 50% said the same of a new printer. What you just explained to me identified something that I hadn't thought that much of is that obviously connecting one unapproved device to the network or to network assets is a problem, but it actually creates the potential for a knock-on effect, so to speak, if you were to say, have a laptop that is not necessarily run by IT. And as a result, you don't have something like a centralized printing software installed on that laptop at your employee's house, who has now connected it to an off-network printer. I hadn't given much thought to the notion that, okay, now in addition to what might be located on that computer, you no longer have the traditional security protections monitoring that computer. And as a result, you not only have the risk of a bad actor getting onto that computer, but you run the risk of that user placing data one or more steps even further outside of your protected environment. What other kind of risks and what other kind of problems? What problems does this cause for IT and for the company? I mean, tons of risks, even just as simple as having some of your company level identities outside of a company protected system. I'm not going to mention it because we've mentioned the name of this company in a few of our previous episodes already. One of the ways that they've got quote-unquote hack, one of the ways that their company got their identity system abused was because the user, the developer in this case, had company-level credentials in their personal-level password manager on their personal computer, and their personal computer was the point of intrusion. Because again, not protected by enterprise-level security systems, not monitored by enterprise-level monitoring, yet a threat actor does not care if they're going to attack your work computer or your home computer. If they want to get into your network and they know you have access, they're going to attack whatever the easiest asset is to get the information they need. And in this case, a home computer is usually far less well defended. And if you are keeping company assets, including the method, basically the keys to walk right into your company's network on that device, then that little shadow IT foobar right there just walked you right in through the front door with hugely elevated privileges and I mean, look at what it did to this company. I mean, it <laughs> caused a large amount of business loss, a huge PR problem that's going to be longstanding. It reduced their place in the industry pretty significantly. And that's just the beginning. And we're still just months in. And there was already a second and a third hiccup as a part of this one that made the investigation even worse. So who knows if we haven't even heard the final chapters of that story yet. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. The, you know, when every time I talk about shadow IT, I can't help but feel like, okay, sure, this is in theory bad. But as you've already touched on, there's a significant 
portion, probably the vast majority of things that we classify as shadow IT is done with not just good intentions, but actually primarily and possibly exclusively beneficial to the business intentions. So I struggle sometimes with this notion that it's something that we need to make a huge deal about. I mean, obviously it creates issues for IT. It makes it so that you guys end up having to spend a whole lot more time on patching and updates because now you're having to go through and verify all of these unapproved devices that have attached to the network. You have to go through and make sure that the software being used is appropriate. Help me out here in getting past this notion that maybe this isn't something. It is one of those funny things. I know when I put applications on my device that shouldn't be there or that aren't approved rather in order to make my job easier, in order to make what I do better, I know that I'm breaking the rules. Make me care. So here's the part where if we need to make someone care, they obviously are interested in hearing the harsh realities in the cases that those exist. So let's talk through a couple of those. Some of those printers that you have out there that are exposed to your computer, if they weren't updated properly, everybody heard about Log4j, they have Log4j in their web portals, which means you can go right through, grab system level privileges on someone's computer and do anything on the computer that they can do. In a lot of cases, sometimes even things that they can't do, depending on if they don't have administrator rights themselves, which in a lot of cases, people that are able to attach shadow IT systems already started with some sort of privileges to be able to do it in the first place. That means that just that one little thing right there, one printer web portal could make you accessible, could make you vulnerable. Think about all the other things you're installing, all the extensions, all the plugins. And so let's just say by the time you get done putting your couple Chrome extensions in, you install a couple applications to listen to music or maybe to take advantage of a new AI system to help with writing some sort of documentation. You attached a new printer to your computer. You attached a different webcam because you didn't like the one that came with your company laptop and so you bought a secondary one. The first printer stopped working so you just left the driver on there because why would you clean that up? But you bought a new printer to replace that one so now you have two printer driver software sitting on your computer both running, picking up resources, only one ever actually doing any level of work. Plus you obviously want to sync over the stuff that you've been doing from your home computer so you install Google Drive connector on there and now you've got stuff syncing back and forth, which means we're losing company data because if you mismatch where you drop some stuff in a few folders, all of a sudden company data is ending up on your personal computer synced right over. And this is, let's just say one user, right? So maybe for one user, for you in particular, none of that stuff's a problem because it never got exploited to you. Until that one time, that one thing, one of those 8, 10, 12, 15 things on your system that you did gets exploited and you say, well, that should have been IT and security's problem. Not a big deal if you're talking about maybe a small business, 10, 15 people, because now if they do 10 things a piece, 10 things, shadow IT things each on their workstation, you got 10 users, you have 100 things that could be your attack surface. And you think, oh, okay, well, maybe 100 things isn't a big deal, not a huge risk. Now take a company the size of like a United Health Group or somebody big that's got hundreds of thousands of employees all doing 10 different shadow IT things each by themselves. And that's the attack surface that their IT department of a couple hundred people have to fight against. Yet every single one of those things is one way that a threat actor could get in, could deploy ransomware across a business, could cause huge losses of dollars. And these type of shadow IT things are more often than not the entrance points of a lot of the major breaches that occur out there. It's either shadow IT that was instituted by somebody outside of IT or items that have just fallen off of an IT department's radar and are just left running unpatched, unmaintained. In most cases, good security hygiene and good security posture is going to make it extremely difficult and challenging for all but the most really intense threat actors to get it. It is really these small oversights and things like this that are brought in outside of visibility that 
tend to be more often than not a major cause of these incidents. Well, okay. So fine. You succeeded. I definitely see this notion of, well, let's be perfectly honest. Right Now I'm actually side-eyeing my printer. Just wondering, just wondering, is someone in there? One frightening statistic out of this report suggested that in 2021, 70% of home workers who clicked on a link that they knew or believed after they clicked it to be a malicious phishing link, 70% did not report it to IT. I imagine that has something to do with being remote. I also imagine it has something to do with the rather perverse disincentives that a lot of big companies have given to not report these things. So I've been trying to figure this out because the bottom line is the shadow IT exists because there are people, and I'll, I'll cop to this, people like me, who have the knowledge of the systems to know how to get around most administrative blocks that prevent me from downloading and using things. And I'm also the kind of person who likes to go out and find things to make myself more efficient. Now, I'm much more security conscious than I would imagine the average person is, largely because of what I do, but I'm doing these things despite there being actual policies against it. In reality, what can we do? What can a small business do? What can any kind of business do? What can be done to convince people that shadow IT is the violation that it really is. I was ready for your question until you said convince people. There's a lot <laughs> of stuff you can do to deal with the shadow IT problem. Unfortunately, it is much easier to deal with from the technical side than it is to deal with the personnel side for the very reason you pointed out that if you put restrictions in place to try and prevent shadow IT from coming into your environment, unless you put all but the most intense restrictions in place, people are going to actively look for ways around those. So what most businesses end up doing and usually try to kind of follow as a maturity model is a balance in there of systems to prevent the most terrible things from getting on the network, and then policies and training to try and enforce the rest of the stuff from getting on the network so that they don't have to lock it down so tight that people can't do anything. And that's where the usability versus security balance comes into play is, again, it's easy to lock stuff down and say, we're going to whitelist every device that comes onto this network, which is great from a security side. But if every user that wants to attach a new cell phone to the Wi-Fi at work so they can get email or something, I mean, and if you're talking a couple hundred thousand users, that's not scalable, not maintainable. You have to have a whole team to just manage exceptions and approvals on and off the network. So you tend to squeeze the balance then towards the side of usability without going to the point of just let everybody attach whatever they want to to the network with no restrictions and no visibility whatsoever. That's the opposite side. That's full usability, no security. So businesses have to determine how important and how prevalent those risks are of those bad things occurring, ransomware, identity theft, data loss. How important are those things to you? And you need to balance security in those specific areas kind of selectively to meet those ends. And so it's not as simple as more user-friendly, more security conscious. It's finding a balance in all those different little areas where security kind of has its tentacles. I suppose there's probably something to be said too for companies keeping an open mind when it comes to suggestions by their employees about tools and systems and equipment that they believe would be beneficial so that there is a reasonable and reliable path to submit something for approval that is responsive enough and, you know, fast enough, quite frankly, that it convinces employees that there is no benefit 
or very little benefit to circumventing the system because the system is set up to help you avoid circumventing it. But depending on what we're talking about, obviously having to clear and add MDM security to new mobile devices every single time someone gets one is very time consuming in the long term and maybe harder to do, especially if you change any policy, than whitelisting an enterprise application. Yeah, it's honey and vinegar, right? It's a matter of do you want security and your security needs to be policy driven and policy enforced or do you want it to be a partnership with the people in your business? Because you can achieve success either way. You can either just be the firm hand and the iron curtain that just says this is all what we're going to allow in because we want security more than we trust you. Or you can go to your people and say, listen, we want a partnership with you, but security is important to us. And that's why we need you to sit down and be part of the conversation, be part of the future of this and be part of the maturity of the security of the organization. So you bring them into those decisions and you let them be part of the conversation. And sometimes you'll say no, but the goal of security department is either to be the team of no, like in the first example, or they're a partner towards it, a securely enabling business operations going forward in the future. And I think that second one is what has been more successful for me because then you start to get buy-in from the business and you get a lot less reluctance and a lot more cooperation rather than people actively trying to go around policies that maybe they otherwise disagree with because they don't understand the full nature of them. Yeah, that certainly does make sense to me. I feel like that would be much more efficient when you have individual buy-in, when you have people understanding why things are the way they are, and when they feel like they have meaningful input into the situation. Obviously, there are going to to be circumstances where that is not possible. Obviously, there are going to be managers, supervisors, directors, whatever, who as a part of their wonderful personality simply functionally cannot incorporate the input of others into their decision making. Bottom line is you have to accept that they exist. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Fearless Paranoia. Don't forget to subscribe to the Fearless Paranoia podcast on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you've enjoyed this episode or any previous episode and believe that it would be helpful to someone else, please share this episode or that episode with them. On behalf of Fearless Paranoia, I'm Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we'll see you next time. Yeah.